Well, we are going to talk about repentance this morning, and it's something we hear Pastor Gable talk about, or we hear him say a lot around here, is that we don't think repentance is a bad word, and we think it's a good word. And I think a lot of us, when we hear the word repentance, it, it might even carry some religious baggage with it, with someone standing on a stage making you feel shame, making you feel guilty for your mistakes, yelling at you, saying, repent or burn, you know, or something like that, or it might be traumatic for you because you grew up in church and maybe you, you think that since I'm talking about repentance that I'm going to, my expectation is that everyone's at the altar on your face uh, crying for seven hours. You know, you might have had one of those experiences like, I got to eat lunch. Like, let's not do this today. Well, I want to talk to you about repentance maybe a little differently than you've experienced in the past. Because repentance, yes, sometimes is, is full of tears and sometimes it, it, it's, it's a long experience as we kind of really go before the Lord. And, and sometimes it just needs to be a regular part of our walk with God. An ongoing uh, act of confessing and repenting before the Lord so that we can go in a different direction. I grew up and uh, was usually the tallest person in the class. Uh, no, thank you. I, I appreciate it. You just, that just means you got the joke really good. Uh, but I did grow up playing a lot of sports growing up. And because of my stature, because I wasn't very tall, uh, you know, I knew early on that if I was going to be good, if I wanted to be on the starting basketball, you know, starting five of the varsity basketball team, or if I wanted to play baseball or whatever it was that I was going to play that, I had to work harder than everyone else. I just knew that. Like, I had to work harder. I had to be faster. I had to be, you know, stronger. I had to have a killer instinct above anyone else playing because it had to be my effort that set me apart because of my stature. So, Growing up playing, I played all kinds of sports growing up, and uh, I know Pastor Gabriel shared, you know, that sports weren't a part of his life growing up, and mine was complete opposite. My brother and I, that was our life. That's all we did. We played sports year-round. And so I had this, you know, kind of developed this killer instinct inside of me that even when I was playing basketball in high school, like I played, I started varsity basketball, even at my height, you know, and part of it was just because I was, I was an animal out there. I was crazy. On the court, and I was, you know, really good at defense because of that, and I was quick. But when I was on the court, I became a different person. And to me, winning is what mattered most. When I'm out there, it's like, okay, now that we're here, I need to know how to lose well, you know, because that's a part of being a good athlete. You know, boys, I'm teaching them how to lose well. But, but when you're on the court, before the buzzer sounds, the goal is to win, right? And you do whatever you can. You work as hard as you need to work to, to win. I remember whenever uh, Brooke and I had our first full-time ministry position, we were middle school pastors at a church in Texas, and we had a Sunday night service, and every Sunday night before service, all the middle school boys would go and play basketball outside. And we had, you know, one of the basketball goals that you could lower to eight and a half feet so that those of us who are vertically challenged could dunk on the goal. Like, it was a lot of fun. First time I could ever dunk on a goal. But I was playing basketball against all these middle school boys, and there was this one night... It was a few months into it. Let's playing basketball. And Brooke came out and she's like, all right, time for service to start. And I'm like, the game's almost over. No, I'm the pastor. I'm the one who's supposed to start service and preach. But I'm like, we're playing here. We're playing to 15. Next point wins. And I remember I go up and I like just barrel through down the lane with all these, you know, middle schoolers, which I'm six, seven, eight years older than them at the time. And I jump up and I dunk on this other kid. And he falls on the ground, and I stand over, and I'm like, ha, ha, take that. And as I'm yelling in the face of this 12-year-old boy, I have this thought, 
I'm his pastor. Something is wrong with this. And in this moment, I realize some of my values need to change. Right? There are some things more important than winning in the middle of a game. And I realize I'm this kid's pastor. And then I'm like, ha, 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 you know, kind of picking back up. And he's like, <laughs> you know, Pastor Nathan. I'm like, yeah, yeah I'm going to go preach and tell you about the grace of God. Let's go. Uh, but I realized that I had to change my mind. I was living one way, and I recognized the way that I'm living probably isn't the best, especially in this season of life, and I need to change my mind. And I would love to tell you that this deep, like, you know, uh, ultra-competitiveness has been uh, healed forever, uh, but that's not necessarily the case. Last week, I was on a a, a work trip uh, down in San Antonio, and we went and played top golf as a team. And the whole point was to, to, you know, just build team. Uh, to build the team. It was a team-building event just to have fun. We'd get out there, and, you know, most of the people have never played golf before, so we're just having fun. And in the middle of it, we're having fun, and all of a sudden, someone else has more points than I have. And I'm like, this can't happen. And I didn't say anything out loud. I just kind of, you know, we're laughing. I walk up and pull out the driver and hit five shots directly to the back wall and then just demolish the point system, you know? I sit down, and one of my coworkers leans over and goes, it was really bugging you that she had more points. I was like, yeah, it was driving me crazy. And he goes, remember, we're here to have fun. I was like, oh, yes, that's why, that's why we're here. But I will say I have changed my mind drastically over the years. My wife can attest to this. Even a few, well, it was a couple years ago, we were talking about my uh, ultra-competitiveness growing up and in the beginning of our marriage, you know, probably scarred her a little bit when we would play board games. Because Brooke could not be more opposite. People come over and she's like just giving them points for some reason. And I'm like, you can't just give them points for no reason. It's like, oh, it's okay. It's no big deal that you got the question wrong. You can still have the points. No, no, no. There are rules to the game. So, you know, I've grown a lot, but she was explaining a couple years ago uh, to some friends like, yeah, early on in marriage when we played board games, it was not fun to play with Nathan. Like it just wasn't even fun because all he cared about was winning. And now he's changed his mind. When we think about this term repentance, it's a biblical term, but a lot of times it carries all kinds of connotations, all kinds of spiritual history with it. But the actual Greek word for repentance is metanoia, and its most literal translation is to change your mind. That's what it means. It means to change your mind. So you can see here on the screen, metanoia is a change of mind. It's the state of changing any or all of the elements that compose one's attitudes, thoughts, and behaviors. You know, one of the things that we say around here is repentance isn't a bad word. How many of you know that there are times when we need to change our mind and it's a really good thing that we're changing our mind? That's what repentance is about. It's being given new information, being confronted with information that causes us to change our mind and our behavior because we realize what we're doing is wrong and we need to go in a different direction. When we hear the word repent, we shouldn't shudder or even feel shame. Instead, When we hear the word repentance, when we feel or or sense the Holy Spirit, you know, nudging us, convicting us, and leading us towards repentance, we can actually be grateful and full of joy that we get to experience the freedom that comes from that repentance. See, there's two parts to biblical repentance. The first part is godly sorrow. Now, the Holy Spirit is God's gift to us. He lives in us, and he is with us. Uh, Now that Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit has come down and and he is with us. And the Holy Spirit does something in our lives when we listen to him, we're attuned to him. He brings what's called conviction. And conviction brings forth this godly sorrow. 
Now, there's a, a difference between conviction and condemnation. Condemnation is from the enemy, and it wants us to feel shame and, and, and horrible about who we are intrinsically. But then there's this conviction, which is from the Holy Spirit, which brings forth a godly sorrow, but it's grace-filled, it's love-filled, and then leads us to Him. So the first part of repentance is, is experiencing that godly sorrow. That I, I lied, I, I cheated, I, I stole, I, I lusted, I did any number of things that, we, that are sin, that are wrong. Uh, I acted out on this, I, I got angry too quickly, and then I feel sorry. A godly sorrow for my actions. That's the first part. Then the second part of repentance is a turning in the other direction. So if I, it means I'm going this way, I've been living this way, I've been doing these things. I feel this godly sorrow and I decide I'm going to turn around and I'm going to go in the other direction. So when we say repentance, it's this changing of mind that I'm going this direction, I'm changing my mind, and instead I'm going to turn my life and go in the other way. It's this godly sorrow coupled with a turning in the other direction. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul talks about the, the, the part of God's character that leads us to repentance. The part of God, God's character that draws us to this place of changing our mind and going in a different direction. Paul writes, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Now, some of us grew up in environments where the idea of repentance was presented as it's God's wrath or God's judgment. But Paul says, no, 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 it's not God's wrath or God's judgment that causes you to turn and change your mind. Look how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you. Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see? It's, it's God's kindness that is intended to turn you from your sin. That's the New Living Translation. Another translation, the ESV puts it this way. The last part of this is not knowing, after that, that comma at the end, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God is so kind, so loving, so compassionate. And so patient with us that he leads us to repentance. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. When he exercises and shows his kindness towards us, what happens is we're confronted with our flaws. When he shows us how kind, how perfect, how beautiful, how lovely, how compassionate he is, we see him, we see his character, and we look at ourselves and say, I am not that way. We recognize that we have some work to do. We recognize that we are flawed. And because we are flawed, we make mistakes. And because we make these mistakes, God's kindness, his grace and compassion causes us to repent, to change our mind, to experience a godly sorrow because we see how perfect he is. And then our imperfections lined up with his perfection causes us to see our, in, our flawed nature and say, I am not where I need to be. And because of that kindness, it leads me to desire to become more like him so that I can repent. And the second part of repentance we talked about is turning in the opposite direction. Changing our mind happens when we first chose Jesus. When we first chose to follow Jesus, a changing of our mind happened. We said, you know, whether we were presenting new information that we didn't know Jesus was the Son of God, we didn't know we were supposed to ask for forgiveness, or maybe we'd heard it before. But at some point in time, every single one of us chose to change our mind and said, you know what? I'm not going to live for myself. Instead, I'm going to live for Jesus. 
because of his sacrifice for me, because of his, his uh, grace, because of what he did for me on the cross, I'm going to choose to follow him. And so uh, a lot of us, we equate repentance with that one-time act, that first act of choosing to follow Jesus. But repentance is to be an ongoing thing that we do as believers. Because here's the thing, until you enter into heaven, you will continue to make mistakes. Every single one of us will be imperfect until the day that we leave this earth and we enter into eternity. At that point in time, we'll receive a heavenly body, we'll be perfect, we will no longer need to repent. But until that time, we're going to need to repent. Now, as we grow in Christ, we're going to need to repent less and less, and for different things, but we're always going to need repentance. Every single time we repent, we're forgiven. Every single time we repent, God has promised to forgive us. We're going to be united with him over and over and over again whenever we repent. So now we're going to look at uh, a biblical example of what true repentance looks like, and it's in the life of David. Uh, it comes from 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, you don't need to turn there. I'm just going to tell you this story because then we're going to dive into to Psalm 51. So if you want to open your Bible somewhere, go to Psalm 51. I'm just going to tell you this story, the backstory of what's happening before we read the prayer that David wrote uh, because of his circumstances. So in 2 Samuel 11, it opens up and it says, In the spring, when kings usually go to war, David stayed home. That's how it opens up. In the spring, when the kings usually go to war, so the king is supposed to be going to war with his army, it says David stayed home. He wasn't where he was supposed to be, all right? So then the story goes that David, you know, is out on his palace and he's overlooking the city. And then he looks down and he sees uh, a woman who climbed on top of her house because I guess that's where the bathtub was. And she starts bathing on top of the house. And David looks down and, and said, I need to meet that woman. And so he calls her into the palace. She comes to the palace. They meet. They have relations you know, there's some children in the room. You know, you know what relations mean, okay? Uh, the rest of us, they have relations. And then he sends her back. A little while later, he finds out she's pregnant. The problem is her husband is at war. So her husband's not around. So as she begins to show the pregnancy, people are going to start to ask, how did this happen? And it's going to come around that, well, she visited the palace that one night. So David sends for her husband, Uriah, and says, hey, come on back. You've been doing such a great job. Come back home. He comes back home, and he comes to the palace, and David meets him, and he's like, hey, now I want you to go to your house and just enjoy yourself, relax, and rest, but Uriah won't go home. He says, no, my brothers are fighting in the war. I cannot go home while they're fighting in the war. And David's like, no, I need you to go home, and I need you to have relations with your wife. You know, he doesn't say this to him but because he can't, but that's what he wants for him to do. He can't get Uriah to go home. He can't get Uriah to cover up his mistake, right? Uh, David's mistake. So after, uh, uh, you know, a few attempts, he just sends Uriah back to the war. And he sends Uriah with a letter. That's sealed. Uriah doesn't know what's in the letter. And it's a letter from David to the head of the army. And in the letter, David tells the leader of the army basically to have Uriah killed in the course of battle. He says, I want you to send a bunch of troops out, you know, way too close to the enemy. And then whenever they're out really far, I want the rest of the army to pull back. So only those on the front lines experience the heat of the battle and basically they're killed. And I want Uriah to be one of those. So 
the leader of the army does that, and then he sends a letter back to David, and he tells the messenger very specifically, when you go back to David and you report what happened, make sure he hears that Uriah was one of those who were killed. Because the leader of the army knows he took mass casualties, and David's not going to be happy with all these mass casualties and this really dumb strategy of going too close and then pulling back. But he says, make sure and tell him Uriah died. So when David hears that Uriah died, he thinks, all is well. Uriah's dead. No one's going to know. Takes Bathsheba, marries her, and says, okay, cool. All is good. Not going to worry about it. No one's going to find out. I've married her. Now when she's pregnant, has the baby, we'll just say it was premature or something, you know, And because people are trying to line up the timelines. I mean, that part's not necessarily in Scripture. I'm just assuming that's what would happen about the whole timelines and premature thing because I'm guessing they knew back then it was about, you know, 40 weeks and all that, but whatever. You get the point. David, he's feeling good. Whew, dodge that bullet. Then all of a sudden, in the story, along comes a prophet. Best named prophet ever. Prophet named Nathan. The prophet Nathan comes to David, and he tells David this parable. See, I, I love this part of the story, because Nathan is smart. He knows if he just comes out and accuses the king of murder and adultery, then he's probably going to be in trouble. So he tells him this story. And he says, hey, David, there's these two men. One's rich. He's got a whole bunch of sheep, a bunch of livestock, super wealthy. There's another man across the street, very poor, has one sheep, has one lamb. And that lamb is like a part of the family. He, he's a pet, you know. He eats dinner with him. I mean, he doesn't say that, but uh, like he, he, he's a pet. He loves this, this lamb. He takes care of him, loves it dearly. He says, the rich man had some unexpected guests, some visitors come over. And so, you know, uh, as the custom was, he needs to feed these people, these travelers, these visitors. He needs to feed them that night. So the rich man who's got all these sheep, all this livestock, he goes across the street and he takes the poor man's one lamb, the one lamb he has. He takes it, kills it, and feeds it to his guests. David is furious. He says, where is this man? I will kill him. He deserves to die. And Nathan says, the man is you. You're rich. You have everything. You're the king. Uriah had one lamb, and you took it. David is now confronted with his sin. Because of David's sin, two people are going to lose their lives. Uriah is killed, but also the son that Bathsheba is going to have is also going to die. David's confronted with his sin. And in this moment, he repents. He begins this process of repentance. And then Psalm 51, what we're going to read here, and what we're going to spend the rest of our time kind of dissecting, is David's prayer of repentance. And it gives us a pattern for what true repentance looks like, what a deeply repentant person looks like. Psalm 51, verse 1, David writes, Have mercy on me, O God. Because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. First thing, if you're taking notes today, you can write this down. Number one, deeply repentant people, they throw themselves on the character of God. Deeply repentant people throw themselves on the character of God. They recognize God is the only one who can bring freedom. He's the only one who can bring forgiveness. And they throw themselves on his character. See, 
David doesn't go into the detail of his sin first. He doesn't go into the things that he did wrong first. He first goes and throws himself on God's character. Whenever we call on God for repentance, whenever we call on God for provision or whatever it is that we need, we need to call on the parts of God's character that we're in need of. See, David doesn't call on God's judgment here. He doesn't say, God, judge me in your wrath. He calls on the part of God that he needs. God, have mercy on me. For need of provision, God, in your great abundance, I call on your, you are Jehovah Jireh, my provider. He calls on the parts of God's character that he is in need of. Whether it be his omnipotence, his mercy, or his peace. We're to call on the part of God's character that we need in that moment. See, David, by calling on God's mercy, he's admitting that he's committed a wrong. Because we don't need mercy if we haven't done anything wrong. So David's admitting that he did something wrong, which leads us to number two. Deeply repentant people fully own the extent of their sin. See, a part of repentance is experiencing that godly sorrow, you know, like we talked about from going this way, and godly sorrow and then changing and going the other direction. But a part of that is understanding that our sin and our mistakes, they have collateral damage for our lives and those around us. And we have to fully own the extent of our sin. We can't downplay the mistake that we made. We have to recognize, we, I made a mistake. See, sometimes we're so terrified to just admit that we did something wrong. That we'll, we'll cast blame on someone else. You know, we'll say it was someone else's fault. We'll act like it's no big, ah, it wasn't that big a deal. Repentance is fully owning. I messed up. I made a mistake. Verse 3, Psalm 51, David writes, I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Earlier, you know, I shared about my uh, deeply competitive nature. And I'm way better than I used to be. Still not there. A couple years ago, well, it's about four years ago now, we had just started a church. We just planted Vine Church here in Trustville. And we're just a few months into it, and we're over at some friend's house, and we're playing board games uh, with some friends. They're, they're newer friends, you know. I'm their new pastor, and so, you know, I want to have a good time and, you know, be a, a good pastoral leader and all that, but also just, you know, play board games. And about halfway through the board game, I realized that I'm, I've been cheating the whole time. I didn't know. Like, I honestly didn't know the rules. I don't say them like, ha, ah, no, you know, I honestly didn't know that I was cheating. And until someone else mentioned something, like everyone's like, oh, you can't do that. That's against the rules. And I was like, in my mind, I've been doing that the whole time. So I, I stopped cheating, but I definitely didn't let them know that I had been cheating. They didn't need to know. It was an accident, right? I win the game. I win at the end. And I'm like, everyone's like, oh, wow, great job. You know, you won. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That night I go home, I can't sleep. Like, it is driving me crazy. I cannot sleep because I'm like, I cheated. I didn't tell them that I cheated. They're going to find out that I cheated. Even if they don't find out, like, I'm their pastor. This is horrible. It's haunting me. It's (laughs) The Holy Spirit, in the form of my wife, is haunting me. No, I'm just kidding. I, I mean, it's... I can't sleep. So, I mean, it's late that night, like 10, 45 or 11, and I text the whole group. I was like, guys, I'm so sorry. I have to confess. I found out. In the middle of it, I figured out that I was cheating, and so I'm sorry for cheating, and they never let me hear the end of it. Every time we played games, they brought up the time that I cheated. But 
I just needed them to know. I, could, I, I, couldn't, uh, I couldn't go on. David says, I recognize my rebellion. I recognize what I did wrong. It haunts me day and night. I can't get it out of my head. See, David is known. He, he's called a man after God's own heart. And part of that is his heart was so soft to the things of God that when he realized he had made a mistake, he wanted to do everything he could to make it right. He fully owned the extent of his sin. He understood that what I did was wrong. See, we are not truly repenting unless we are clear on the sinfulness of sin. It's not true repentance if we're not clear on the sinfulness of sin. When we downplay it, when we shift blame, when we, when we say it wasn't a big deal or, or someone else caused me to do it and we make all the excuses, that's not true repentance. True repentance is, I own my part of this. I made this mistake. Fully owning the extent of our sin. You know, our kids regularly do stupid things towards one another. Any other, body, anybody else, your kids are this way? No, your kids are nice to one another. How'd you do that? I can't figure it out. And they do things mean to one another. And then we always require them to say, I'm sorry. And as a parent, you can tell when the sorry is sincere. Right? Right? It's like, hey, I need, you need to say I'm sorry. It's like, sorry. <laughs> no, no, you need to actually tell them that you're sorry for what you did. Well, what if I'm not sorry? Like, well, you go tell them anyways. And you act like you're sorry. Some of us kind of take that approach to, with God sometimes. It's like, we feel like the outward expression of sincerity cuts it. Let me tell you, God knows the inward parts of us. He knows if the repentance is sincere or not. We might look very sincere. We might be down here at the altar. We might be at home. We might be, you know, in the, at worship or whatever. We might, be, we might have tears coming from our face. We might be acting, performing the act of repentance. God, I messed up and please forgive me. But internally, we might be completely insincere, fully expecting to do the same thing again. See, here's the thing about repentance. Every single time you repent, a thousand times, 10,000 times, 20,000 times, every single time you repent, we will be forgiven. You will be forgiven. But repentance carries a, a, a deeper aspect than just saying, I'm sorry. It carries the intent that I don't ever want to do that again. You can repent for the same sin a hundred times. If it's true repentance, you will be forgiven. But if it's not true repentance, we don't fully own the extent of my sin. I don't fully anticipate or, 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 you know, doing everything within my power to not do it anymore than it's not repentance. If it's, you know, uh, I, mean, we, I mean, I'm sure a lot of you heard this too. I've heard people say like, ooh, I'm about to go, you know, and this is going to be tough. Well, I'll just ask forgiveness for it afterwards. I don't know if you're going to be forgiven because you're, you're fully expecting just to do it and then going to ask forgiveness later or even say like, oh, well, I did this, but I knew I could ask forgiveness. Like that doesn't seem like sincere repentance. But if it's sincere repentance, for deep, fully owning the extent of our sin, forgiveness is always going to come. See, our sin also has collateral damage. Two people lost their lives because of David's sin. Whenever we sin, whenever we make mistakes, oftentimes there's collateral damage and we need forgiveness from other people. God has promised that he will forgive us. But when we sin and we hurt others, we can't demand that they forgive us. We can't demand that they forgive us for our mistakes. Whether they forgive us or not is between them and God. But I will say, a lot of times, the depth of someone else's forgiveness towards us is connected to the depth of our repentance to them. 
when we fully own the extent, I am sorry, I didn't mean to do this, or I meant to do it, and I shouldn't have, whatever it may be, like we fully own, I'm going to do everything I can to not do that anymore. Will you please? The depth of our, for, our repentance is oftentimes connected to the depth of their forgiveness. Not always. We can't change other people's behavior. We can't force them to forgive us. But our sin has collateral damage, and we have to fully own the extent of our sin, the, the, uh, the implications for our life, but also the collateral damage it had in others. Deeply repentant people fully own the extent of their sin. And number three, deeply repentant people long for real transformation. Long for real transformation. See, the purpose of repentance is to receive forgiveness and to become a new person. It's to become a brand new person, to have real transformation happen in our lives. I can stand up here and say, I've repented of the same sin lots and lots and lots and lots of times. And I really, really, really didn't ever plan on doing it again, but then I found myself doing it again sometime later. But that's not what I want to do. I want real transformation. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to experience that anymore. I want forgiveness and I want to be a new person. I'm longing for real transformation. And the Holy Spirit is the only one who can truly transform you from who you are to who you can be. The Holy Spirit is the only one that can transform us. All the self-help books in the world can't do what the Holy Spirit can do in an instant. But sometimes the Holy Spirit needs more than an instant. Sometimes he needs months to work on us. Now, I heard C.S. Lewis, or I've heard, I've read C.S. Lewis, uh, he was, his writings about repentance and, uh, and about forgiveness, and it kind of really put some things into perspective. You know, a lot of times he said repentance, it happens in an instant, we're forgiven in an instant, and there's no consequences because our actions were small. He said, but sometimes it's like a math problem. You think about a math problem, you know, not, not, not two plus two equals four, okay? I'm talking like complicated math. You have the sequence of things that leads to this, and then it leads to this, and you're trying to ultimately a, a achieve a solution. And if the last calculation was incorrect, if you only fix the last calculation, then the result ends up being okay. But if five and six calculations up, if one of those was incorrect, you have to go back to that place and start from there to get to the result. And the same is true in our sin. That sometimes when we, when we make mistakes... We are longing for real transformation, but we're wanting it now in this moment. Holy Spirit, no, we got to back up. There's some deeper-seated things in you that need to change, that need to grow, that need to transform, that need to, that need to become new. And then it's going to lead, it's going to cascade down. So this thing, this, this outward expression of some inward uh, mess is going to be fixed when the inward mess is fixed instead of just the outward expression. And the Holy Spirit is the only one that can do that in us. Deeply repentant people long for real transformation. They recognize that that transformation comes from the Holy Spirit. Look at what David writes in verse 10, Psalm 51. And I love, this was actually on the video pre-worship. So for those of you who come in like after worship started, you missed it. Everybody else, you saw it. But it was on there. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Look at who David asked to create a clean heart in him. He doesn't say, oh, my soul become clean. 
Let's be clean. He says, God, you're the only one. You're the one that needs to create this clean heart in me. God created me a clean heart. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Look at verse 11. David, he's not concerned in this moment. He's not concerned with, you know, uh, maintaining his status. He's not concerned with maintaining his financial situation, not concerned with maintaining his materials. His one concern is don't banish me from your presence. The most important thing is your presence, God, because of my sin, I don't want to be removed from your presence because it's in your presence, God. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me, O God. It's your Holy Spirit that brings forth the freedom that I need, the fulfillment, the contentment that we long for in life. It only comes through the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Don't banish me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. In verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. There's a joy that comes. That first moment when you gave your heart to Christ, when you chose to follow Jesus, there was a joy that filled it because you knew your position in eternity is secured. You're forgiven and set free. There's a joy that comes with that. But sometimes following Jesus feels much more like a burden than a joy. Maybe it's because we have some stuff we've been carrying. Like God's like, I'm ready to, for, to remove that so it's light and full of joy again. David says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. David says, create in me a clean heart. Make me willing to obey you. Restore the joy of salvation. Restore the joy that I had when I was living with you. I heard a story a number of years ago about uh, an exterminator that was coming into a, a large office building. And the building was overrun, you know, with different types of pests and bugs and vermin and everything. The exterminator comes, and so they cleared out the office complex. And he's like, all right, but before I go in there and before we do what we need to do to clear out the building, he talks to the building's owner, and he says, I need you to go and unlock every single room, every closet, every storage room, every secret place, every single room in this whole building needs to be unlocked and open." He says, because if I go in there and I do all the things, we spray all the stuff we need to spray, but if there's one single room that's not open, then the pest will get it, they will find it, they will multiply, and then they'll just run everything back over again. Fully owning the extent of our sin, a deeply repentant person comes before God and says, I'm opening up every single room of my life and my heart because I know you're the one that brings freedom You're you're not, uh, uh, your love for me is not based on my performance. It's not based on whether I have everything perfect. We don't have to act like we're perfect before God because he already knows that we're not. And God says, just open up every single room, open up every door so that I can come in and transform you into this new person. But some of us, we've kept certain parts of us locked away and hidden for years. Like, God, I, I want you to work in this life, but don't touch that. That's mine. I'm not really, I'm not going to let you in there because I don't really want that part of my life to change. That's the deep reason is I don't want that part of me to change. Why else would we not let God in? You know, I, I like to think of this idea of Jesus forgiving me and, uh, and helping me clean up my mess. I like to think of it as whenever you have an unexpected guest show up at the house. We have, you know, a few children, 
and they like to uh, enjoy our house slash make a mess, you know. They like to make a mess. And we made up our minds a long time ago, like, you know, we just, we're not the type of people that are going to keep everything clean and pristine all the time. So we just don't buy really expensive furniture because chances are the kids are going to ruin it at some point in time, you know. But whenever people come over, I mean, every Saturday night we have small group. What do we do? We go around and we clean up the house so that when people come, because, you know, we, we know they're coming, we get everything prepared. So when they walk in, they're like, hey, this is pretty clean. And you're like, yeah, 20 minutes ago it was not, right? But, like, we all do this. We get the idea. But have you ever had someone just show up at your house and you didn't know they were coming? Right? Like, show up and they knock on the door and you open it. And it's like, oh, hey. And you instantly look back like, is everything okay for them to come in? No, it's not. Close the door. Here we go. Don't look in there. You know, guys, clean up real fast. So-and-so's here. And so we get it all clean for them. I like to think of Jesus coming to my house unannounced. And I open the door, and he looks in, and, and he sees the mess. And he just walks in and starts cleaning it up for me. That's what repentance is about. I've messed up. I made a mistake. I lied. I, che- I, did, I did this thing. God... I open my life to you and Jesus says, yeah, let me get in there and I'll just clean it up for you. I'll get in there and I'll do the work. I'll take care of it. You just got to let me in. That's all you got to do is just let me in. See, Jesus desires to have this intimate personal relationship with each one of us. He wants to have a close reciprocal relationship. where We talk to him and he talks to us and we enjoy being together. But our sin, our mistakes, they separate us from that intimacy that God desires. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on and uh, come on up. Our, our sin separates us. So let's say that, that God is over here, you know, and, and I'm, I'm close to him in this moment. And I feel close to him and because we're, we're in the same location and, and uh, I've repented and I'm, I'm, I'm set free because of his forgiveness. And, and I'm close to him. and I feel this intimacy. I sense him near me. But then I make a mistake. What happens is there's just this little separation that happens. And I can still talk to him and I can still commune with him. But there's that little bit of, a little bit of that intimacy, a little bit of that closeness is removed because of my sin. And then I make another mistake and I sin again. And then I make another mistake and I sin again. Then I make another mistake and I sin again. And now I feel separated from God. I don't feel near to him. Now, I'm still a believer. I'm still going to heaven. I've been forgiven. One sin is not going to send me to hell forever. But that intimacy that God desires, that I desire, isn't there right now because there's this sin. There's these mistakes in between us. And so many times we think, well, now I got to do a bunch of good things to work myself back up, to get close to him again. When in reality, even though I'm this far away from him, all I have to do is repent. And then God comes to me. He makes up the distance. He says, all that sin, all those mistakes, I'm going to clean it. I'm going to wash it. I'm going to make it new. I'm going to make you new. And then I'm going to come and I'm going to be right close to you again. See, intimacy with God, forgiveness, eternity, it's always just like a half turn away. If I'm headed in this direction, it's just a half turn and looking back and says, God, I will make up the difference. Sometimes we think of repentance. We think of this difficult, arduous process. And sometimes it's just as simple as saying, I know I messed up, God. Will you forgive me? And he makes up that distance. He says, I will be close to you once again. I'm here for you. 
Would you close your eyes this morning with us, with me? In a minute, we're going to have the prayer team come up. And they're here to pray with you for anything in your life. It might be repentance. It might have nothing to do with what we talked about today. You might have a sick loved one. You might have a job situation going on you need help with. You might have some financial struggles, some emergency things have hit, whatever it may be. The prayer team is here. They're just here to pray with you. I think sometimes a lot of us are even nervous or scared to come pray, get prayer because we might feel some shame. Who's looking at me? Who's thinking I need prayer? Listen, I need prayer. I happily come up to the altar sometimes and get prayer because I need. Th- there's things going on in my life I would just love God's help with, so that's what they're here for. But before we do that, I just want to take a minute and just model a little bit what repentance looks like. And then I want to give you a moment to just have some time with God. Repentance is about recognizing we've made a mistake. Owning the full extent of our sin and then longing for real transformation. So if you've never prayed a prayer of repentance before, that's okay. I'm just going to pray a simple prayer just to model what that looks like. And if, you're, if you mean it, and if it's sincere, then that's repentance. Because remember, it's what's going on internally, not just the words that we say. But a simple prayer of repentance can sound like this. God, a couple days ago, you know the time. I was at work. Someone asked me if I had completed the project. I hadn't really done it yet. But I didn't want it to, I didn't want them to know I hadn't done it. And I knew I could get it done before they found out. So God, I just, I lied. And I told them that it was done and I knew it wasn't. Father, I know that was wrong. Would you forgive me? Would you make me new? Would you take away that sin? I know in your word, it's, it, it says that you will forgive me anytime I confess and I repent. So I repent. Please forgive me. Thank you that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, you may be asking, was that real? Did you actually lie, Nathan? No, I made that up. But I could have easily shared some things. I want you to close your eyes and just spend a moment with Jesus. If there's some things that you need to confess and repent, you can do it silently or you can say it out loud. This is a safe place. Pastor Mike talk about, talked about it earlier today that we, I think we really think there's something happening in our church family that's special. If there's something going on, there's a breaking taking place. And, and last week when, when we heard a, a heartfelt confession and then a baptism to be new to close the door on old things, like God wants to do something in here and it might be in your life. And we also know this is a safe place. So we're just going to take a moment. I'm going to stop talking here in 10 seconds. You're going to have some moments to just Spin with God. What I want you to remember is that freedom sits on the other side of heartfelt repentance.